The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. All right, well, hey, sometimes in life we encounter two things that are true, and yet we can't quite reconcile those two things in our mind or in our actions. Let me give you two examples just to kind of lighten the room a little bit, right? Uh, think about pizza for a minute, okay? Um, I love pizza. I do. And um, however, unfortunately, when God created me, um, I'm pretty sure he forgot to put in the pizza shutoff switch. Do you know what I'm saying? I always eat one too many pizzas. It doesn't even, it doesn't even, pieces, not pizzas. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It doesn't really matter how many pieces I eat, right? It's always the last piece that is the... Eat that last piece. I don't know if this is, this is the same for you or not. Before I eat that last piece of pizza, I, two things I know to be true in my head. One, it's going to be so delicious, right? I mean, it is going to taste good. And then, but two, in precisely 26 minutes, I am going to feel terrible, you know? And both are true, I know them to be true, and yet I can't quite reconcile them in my actions. I, I'm always going for it. Or, second example, take Husker football, all right? Um, the last several years, on paper, you're, you're looking over the roster, you're looking over the coaching staff, right? It would seem we're not that bad. Actually, it seems like we ought to be pretty good. And then, and then you watch the game, right? <laughs> and in and, and your mind and your understanding of the roster and the team and all that sort of stuff is telling you one thing, but your eyeballs and the scoreboard are, are telling you another. We can't reconcile them in our heads, can we? Well, listen, something similar but way more serious is going on in Romans 9 and, and 10. Um, but the two things, that, like I said, they're way more serious than pizza or, or football. The, the two things that are true that Romans 9 and 10 set forward that are difficult for us to reconcile in our minds are none other than the sovereignty of God and human responsibility. <laughs> now, in the world of um, theologians, we, we have a name for this phenomenon. We, we call it an antinomy. Here's a good definition of antinomy from the late theologian J.I. Packer. He says, an antinomy is an appearance of contradiction between conclusions which seem equally logical, reasonable, or necessary, but it is a mystery to how they can be squared with each other. You see that each must be true on its own, but you do not see how they can both be true together. <laughs> Other antinomies in the scripture would include Jesus being fully God and fully man. Right? It would seem that both cannot be simultaneously true, but they are. Scripture asserts that they are. Likewise, scripture itself as the work of God and the work of man. Again, two things that maybe we could understand um, one at a time on their own, but put them together, and it is difficult, isn't it, for our finite, fallible minds and intellect to square them. It would seem that both cannot be simultaneously true, but they are. It's the same with God's sovereignty and human responsibility. God is sovereign. Scripture asserts it. It's all over the Bible. And... We are responsible. Scripture asserts it. It's all over the Bible. 
And all this comes front and center in our text today. See, in the passage that we looked at last week, Romans 9, um, 6 through, through 29, we saw that God is faithful and, and sovereign. He's in sovereign control of the salvation of his people. You know, the big idea of Romans 9 up until and through verse 29 is that no one would be saved were it not for God in his sovereignty choosing them. It's God's action alone that saves. So then we ask quite naturally and, and often with a lot of heartbrokenness and concern for people who we love, why is anyone lost? Is it because they were not of the elect? Romans 10 is going to tell us, no. Romans 10 is going to tell us that it's because of the rejection of the gospel. Are you starting to feel the antinomy? <laughs> Two things, both true, that are difficult, if, if, if not maybe even humanly impossible for us to reconcile with our finite and fallible minds. There's mystery here, church. Not the kind of mystery that's easily solved, perhaps even a mystery that we aren't to solve. Listen to how Martin Lloyd-Jones um, so concisely sums this up. He says, we are responsible for our rejection of the gospel, but we are not responsible for our acceptance of it. <laughs> Why is anyone saved? Because God chose them. Why is anyone lost? Because they've rejected the gospel. That's our passage today. In other words, when you put Romans 9 and 10 together, which we should always kind of do, by the way, right, when we're reading the Bible, what you see is that election alone accounts for the saved, but non-election alone does not account for the lost. See, here's the big idea that the last bit of Romans 9 in chapter 10 um, brings forward for us this morning. It's this, that everyone is responsible for how they treat the gospel. Everyone is responsible for how they treat the gospel. Last week, our focus was on God's divine sovereignty, his purpose in salvation, his freedom in salvation, his glory in salvation. Today... Our focus is on the other side of the antinomy, human responsibility. We're talking about the gospel and human responsibility today. And here in our text, we're going to see first how unbelief works. Next, we're going to see how salvation works. And then finally, how to explain when it doesn't work. In other words, when the gospel goes out and it is heard and even understood, but someone isn't saved... Why is that? Is it just, well, darn it, tough break. I guess God didn't choose that person. No, Paul is going to tell us that it's about man's responsibility. So how unbelief works, how salvation works, and how... When it doesn't work. We doing all right on the mic? Okay, I got a thumbs up. We'll keep it rolling. 
Um, if you're not there already, please turn in your Bibles to Romans uh, chapter 9. We'll begin at the far end of Romans chapter 9, verse 30, um, actually. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, it's page 946. I'll give you just a minute to turn there, because um, we really want you to be familiar with seeing God's truth in your copy of God's Word. If you don't have a copy, take one of those Pew Bibles and, and make it your own. But I, my heart is for you to be able to return to God's Word. And, and, and see these truths for yourself that are there. Romans chapter 9, beginning in, in verse 30, we read this. What then shall we say? What shall we say then? Like this, this is Paul saying, okay, it, where have we gotten? <laughs> how might we sum up everything we've been talking about so far? He, here's how he sums it up. That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So here we have it. Right, here, here's Paul's summary in coming out of the rest of what he said in chapter 9, Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, okay, who were not seeking after God, not seeking to please Him, not trying to honor Him, not trying to bring all their life into accord with His Word, got in. They got in. This alone is astonishing. It's amazing. It's an amazing testament to the mercy of God that we read about last week. God has mercy on whom he has mercy, and he has had mercy on Gentiles. Not all Gentiles everywhere, but even if it were just one Gentile, it would be an amazing act of his mercy. These are the same Gentiles, the same kind of people that he was talking about in Romans chapter 1. You remember Romans chapter 1? He's talking about people who had exchanged the glory of the immortal God for other things, exchanged the truth about God for a lie, worshiped creation rather than the creator. Those who were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, he said. Romans 1.29, remember? Evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit. <laughs> all the, their gossips, he said, they're slanderers, haters of God, and on and on he goes in Romans chapter 1. They're sinners. They're weak. They're ungodly. And while they were still weak, at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. In fact, Romans 5 has told us that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. What have they attained? A righteousness that is by faith. Right? Standing with God, reconciliation with God by faith. This harkens us back to chapter 1 as well, right? Where Paul so boldly proclaimed, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first, also the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. 
Gentiles are flooding into the kingdom in Paul's day. But Israel, verse 31, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, all right, contrasted here with the Gentiles, the Israelites who, who were seeking hard after God, who were trying to please Him, who were trying to honor Him, who were trying to bring all their life into accordance with His word, are not in. Equally astonishing. Some became Christians, sure, but not all of them. A large number, remember, perhaps most Jews did not. Why? Verse 32, because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were by works. There's the kicker, isn't it? I mean, Paul, Paul has been laboring this point in his letter to the Romans up until this point. We are not counted right, righteous before God by our work, but by the work of Jesus He's been hammering home the point, man, salvation is not spelled D-O. It's spelled D-O-N-E. It's not about what you do. It's about what Jesus has done. For by works of the law, he said back in chapter 3, no human being will be justified. No, one gets right with God, reconciled with God, sins forgiven by God through faith, not by works. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. It's faith that matters for justification, for righteousness, for right standing with God. Not works, but faith in Jesus. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All, everyone, everywhere, even the Jews who thought they were perfectly keeping the law were not. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. How? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And yet the Israelites had stumbled here. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, and Christ is the stumbling stone. Behold, he says in verse 33, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. <laughs> Do you see, whoever believes in him. Like what, what matters for salvation is not your works, but your believing in Jesus. The, the Israelites were so focused on the law, running so hard after the law, that they missed the rock of Christ that God put right smack dab in the middle of their path. And instead of seeing Christ as the rock of salvation, they stumbled over him instead. They were focused on what they achieved instead of what to believe. In chapter 10, verse 1, Paul writes, Brothers, my heart's desire and, and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Remember, Paul has great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart for his fellow Jews who don't believe. He feels like you feel towards your loved ones who don't believe. His heart's desire is your heart's desire. His prayer is your prayer that they would be saved. But his situation is maybe even more unique than ours. Because the ones he's talking about, in verse 2, he says, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. But not according to knowledge. If they were zealous for God, trying to run after God and, and please God. They were very religious. And yet they were missing it, missing Jesus. Again, stumbling over 
the stumbling stone. Four, verse three, being ignorant of the righteousness of God. Or as another translation puts it, ignoring the righteousness that comes from God. And seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. All right, the whole point of Christ's coming was to show forth that by works of the law, no one will be saved. He's the end of that kind of effort. He's the end of that kind of thinking. I mean, go back to Romans chapter 4 and Paul talking about Abraham. And him being counted right because of his faith. No one ever has, no one ever will be counted right by their works. Jesus came not to put an end to that way of getting right with God. It was never a way to get right with God. He came to put an end to anyone even trying. And yet the Israelites ignored him. They stumbled over him, ignored the righteousness that comes from God by trusting in Jesus and sought and said to establish their own righteousness. They did not submit, is the word Paul uses, to Jesus. Why are they lost? Why is anyone lost? How does unbelief work? Is it simply that God didn't choose them? Are they just out of luck based on the predetermined choice of God? No, Paul says here. They're responsible. They're culpable. They're responsible for how they've treated the gospel. See, they heard about Jesus. And they knew what he was claiming. That's why they killed him. The problem was that they were seeking to establish their own righteousness and refusing to submit, refusing to accept the righteousness that comes from God himself through Jesus Christ. Friends, the first step to obtaining the righteousness of God is always to renounce our own righteousness. Perhaps for those of us who've been walking with Jesus for some time now, that seems easy, you know? Um, seems like a, a no-brainer. But it's, it's really not, is it? We like our own righteousness. It's humbling to renounce it. We pride ourselves on, on our works, on our efforts, on our self-sufficiency, even on our zeal for God. Again, if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, this is what you need to hear. Your works will never get you in. You'll never establish yourself before God. He's, he's not impressed by you. <laughs> right? Like You're never going to impress him. Not enough to deserve his salvation. In fact, if you're trying to impress him, you're stumbling. You're not submitting. It's only when we cast ourselves at the feet of Jesus, Christ alone for salvation, that we receive the righteousness of God and are counted right with God, justified before God. And listen, you, you might think you're a Christian and have never done that. You might call yourself a Christian and have never done that. You can grow up in the church, you can go to church, you can be a part of a church for years and have never done that. And so ask yourself this morning, what am I looking to, to know I'm good with God? Is it my works? 
Is it my record? Is it my attendance or my knowledge or my conquering of sin in my life? Hmm? Even as Christians, we're prone to slide back towards works, tempted to believe that God's favor is earned, tempted to look at something else to justify us and to know that we're good. Our spiritual disciplines, our way of doing community, our serving, our hospitality, don't we all have just a little hint of still comparing ourselves to others and either puffing ourselves up in pride because we think we're nailing it, right, or beating ourselves up in shame because we think we're getting killed by it. We're not that different. (laughs) We too can stumble even after having accepted the righteousness that comes from trusting in Jesus. We still struggle with unbelief from time to time. Paul is saying, not only is that not okay, it's dangerous. You cannot seek to establish your own righteousness and submit to God's righteousness at the same time. It's one or the other. It's all or nothing. Either Christ is your righteousness or he's not. This is how unbelief works. We're responsible for how we treat the gospel. The unbelieving Israelites, they they heard this gospel and they looked at Jesus and they said, nah, we're good. Why do we need his righteousness? We got our own. Look at all the stuff we're doing for him. And they did not submit to God's righteousness. Friends, either Jesus is who you look to to know that you're right with God or you're not right with God. Either you submit yourself to Jesus and his righteousness or you don't. And if we don't, we're responsible for our unbelief. No one can blame their unbelief on God. No one can blame their unbelief on God. We're all responsible for how we treat the gospel. Well, if that's all true, how, does, how then does salvation work exactly, right? Well, Paul tells us if we keep reading, this is the beauty of the Bible, just keep reading. Look at chapter 10, verse 5. He says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But if righteousness based on faith, but the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That is, to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up for the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Now, there's quite a bit going on in those three verses there, including quotations from Leviticus 18, verse 5, and Deuteronomy chapter 30. Paul pulls, though, from those Old Testament passages to say, look, The gospel is easily accessible. That's his point. Salvation is available. It's not hard to be saved. See, when we read verse 5, it seems like Paul is saying that Moses taught, this is the Leviticus 18 reference, that you could be saved through law-keeping, but really what Moses was teaching is that if you could obey the law perfectly, you would receive eternal life. But of course, none of us can 
Paul has labored in his letter to show us that none of us can. We all fall short. It's impossible. Listen, it's far off. It's unavailable. But then in verses 6 through 7, he goes to Deuteronomy chapter 30, and he goes to Deuteronomy chapter 30 to tell us that the gospel is the opposite. It's not impossible. It's not far off. It's available. This is the righteousness that is based on faith. Christ has come and died. He's been raised. He's therefore immediately accessible by faith. We don't have to do anything. Everything has been done. God brought Christ down, verse 6, in the incarnation. We don't have to go up into heaven looking for him. We don't have to go up there trying to figure out, hey, how are we going to get right with God? No, God brought Christ down. And then he raised him up, verse 7, in the resurrection. We don't, we don't have to raise him back up by ourselves. No, the word is near you, verse 8. God has made righteousness readily accessible and available. You don't have to go off into the wilderness and have a eureka moment with him. You don't have to go searching. You don't have to reach rock bottom, plumbing the depths of an existential crisis or getting to the end of yourself so you can finally turn. All you have to do to attain the righteousness is to hear the gospel preached and respond in faith. It's not hard, Paul is saying. It's not far away. It's near. It's near by way of anyone who shares the gospel with you, a friend, a pastor, a parent. Listen, salvation is on the bottom shelf next to the cookies. It's down here. We don't do anything to deserve it. While we're still weak, he died for us. And so listen, if you're here today and you're not a believer, there is no reason for you to leave here today without becoming one. It's accessible. You say, how does that work? Paul tells us. Verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That preaches itself. <laughs> Passages like that make my job real easy, Right? Don't let me overcomplicate it for you. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you're saved. This is the only way anyone has ever been saved. This is the only way any of us have ever been saved. This is the only way that anyone ever will be saved because this is the only way to be saved. And listen, there's content rolled up into the summary of Paul's. 
Right? Believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead encompasses believing that he died for you. Right? You don't raise from the dead unless you died first. So we, we believe that God sent Jesus and he died for us in our place for our sins. Taking on the wrath that we deserve. Paul's talked about that already. He doesn't have to say it again in chapter 10. He said it back in chapter 3. That Jesus was put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. He quenched the wrath that we deserved. It's believing also that he rose for you. Giving you new life. That he's conquered death. Verse 10 restates it, pointing out that it's, it's the heart that has been transformed by faith, reborn, regenerated, if we want to start using theological terms, right? Regenerated. And if you believe in Jesus in your regenerated heart, if you believe that he came for you and lived for you and died for you, you're justified. It's the righteousness that comes by faith. Confessing Jesus, then, is, is not some separate action. It's the other side of the same coin of real faith. It's letting others know and even making a public profession through baptism. Telling everybody, this gospel good news is true of me. Because when it is, you want others to know about it. And Paul's point, it's freely, widely, generously available. It's not far off. It's near. I've just brought it near. <laughs> it's the word of faith that I proclaim. And if you're still wrestling with that, just take one of these Bibles home. It's still near. It's right here. It's still near. It's still near. <laughs> Anyone can get in on this. Paul cites from Isaiah 28 here in verse 11 that everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame doesn't matter who you are, verse 12, Jew or Greek, raised in the church or not. Or looping back to the end of chapter 9, pursuing God in all his ways or not. It's the same Lord who bestows. Remember, we're responsible for our rejection of the gospel, but we're not, we're not responsible for our accepting of it. It's the same Lord who bestows his riches on all who call on him. For everyone. Are you getting this? The, the, the all-encompassing language here, everyone who believes, all who call on him, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's not like some call on him and he's like, hang on a second, let me check the list. Are you on it? Did I choose you? Did I predestine you? Did I elect you? <laughs> Scripture's clear right here, friends. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's available to all, accessible to all. All you have to do is call on him. Now think about that. Because you can be a complete disaster <laughs> and get saved by God. And such were some of you. Right? You know what Paul says? Many of us in this room, myself absolutely included, that's our story. I was a disaster, right? You can be here this morning coming off the biggest bender of your life and hear the gospel and believe in your heart and confess with your mouth and be saved. There's no waiting period. No cooling off laws. 
right? There, there's no application review. God, God's not checking your personal references. He's not skimming through social media to, to, to see if there's anything incriminating out there that might bring shame back on him later. Anything out there is going to bring glory on him later because that's what he saved you from. <laughs> Anyone can get in on this at any time. It's universally available. And for those of us who have been saved by grace through faith already, listen, we need to be reminded of that too. Lest we begin to set up barriers or project expectations on others whom God is seeking to save through the simple, unadulterated, non-Americanized, non-evangelical Christianityized gospel. You remember who you were before you met Jesus? <laughs> I do. For myself, and, and some of you. I remember who you were before you met Jesus, right? Before any work of the Holy Spirit began in your life, you were a hot mess. <laughs> and if you're sitting there thinking, no, I wasn't, you might be missing the point around here in Romans 10. You might be stumbling over the stumbling block and puffing yourself up with self-righteousness. You were a mess. I was a mess. And God wants to and will continue to save people just like that. Just like you. Just like you used to be. Just like I used to be. No prerequisites. Like no theological vocab tests. No standards of, of, contact, uh, of conduct, not at the entry point. Just simple faith in Jesus. And listen, if we ever stop being a church that believes that, if that ever stops being just in the, the water of our culture around here, Lord help us. Because the strong tendency in churches as they grow, as they mature, as they get more established. And it's a strong tendency in Christians as we grow and mature and get more established in our faith. But not if we remember the gospel, it isn't. It shouldn't be. And the, the gospel reminds us, doesn't it, who we were? The gospel reminds us who we are. The gospel reminds us how we got here. It's only by a righteous God who puts unrighteous people right with himself by bestowing upon us the righteousness of Christ. That's it. And Paul goes on in verse 14 to tell us how that happens. I love this about Paul. He doesn't just tell us how salvation works. He tells us how it happens in verse 14. How then will they call on him whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Listen, if we turn this around, this section right here, turn it around in reverse order, Christ sends his heralds, sends his heralds. The word for preaching and preach here in verses 14 and 15 means herald. It's not just what I'm doing right here. It's not just restricted to the pulpit. We are all heralds. You are a herald. Witnesses ambassadors for Christ, sent out by Christ, unleashed missionaries to rip off our mission statement, right? 
Christ sends out his heralds. The heralds herald, okay? People hear, this is how it works. The heralds herald, people hear, hearers believe, believers call, and all those who call upon the name of the Lord are saved. Verse 17 sums it up. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. That's the content we herald as heralds. The word of Christ, the good news about Jesus, the gospel. We're not ashamed of it, are we? Are we? It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now this is a a glorious couple verses. We all love it, don't we? I mean, but let's not forget our place in it, especially as Christians. When we read verses 14 and 15 of chapter 10, part of what we ought to understand is that we as believers, we are responsible for how we treat the gospel too. Jesus commands us, didn't he? Go. Go. He didn't say stay. He didn't say huddle up and hunker down. He said go and make He didn't say go and hang out with other disciples. He said go and make more disciples of all the nations. That requires us to get around unbelievers, to get out into the world, doesn't it? To go out into the world to make disciples. How are we going to do that? By heralding the gospel, witnessing to others in our ordinary lives as we live out our faith with gospel faithfulness and gospel intentionality. We are responsible for how we treat the gospel that we have received. You are responsible, Christian, for how you treat the gospel as a herald. Now, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you've probably tried that to certain degrees. Sharing the gospel with others around you, seeking in non-judgmental, non-condescending, gentle and humble and loving ways, I hope, to tell someone else about Jesus. Maybe even over the course of years of living alongside them. Sometimes they're interested. Sometimes they come to church with you or they go to a different church, right? Sometimes they believe and are saved and that's beautiful and it's amazing and we praise God for that. He's the one we know bestowing his riches on them by his Holy Spirit through you as a herald vessel. But also, sometimes you've done that, and it was met with nothing. Maybe a family member of yours, or a child, a parent, sibling, friend. No interest, no belief. Maybe even I had a a neighbor tell me once, hey, I don't want you to talk to me about Jesus anymore. This was someone who'd visited our church way back when we were meeting in a bar downtown. Someone who played drums a couple times in our worship band, had been in my home for our gospel community, prayed with other believers. And then one day it changed. He just wasn't interested anymore. And he said, stop talking to me about that stuff. How do we explain that? I mean, if the gospel is so easily accessible, 
If it's so universally available, if salvation really is down there by the cookies on the bottom shelf, if all we have to do is share it, how do we explain when it doesn't work? Are we back to saying, well, darn it, I guess they weren't elect. Is it God's fault somehow? Is he just cruel and decided not to choose them? No. Paul teaches us clearly here that everyone is responsible for how they treat the gospel. Remember, in context, he's still talking about his fellow Israelites, his kinsmen according to the flesh, those he has an enormous pain for deep inside of him that he's never free from. Great and bitter sorrow, continual and unceasing anguish. And he asks in verse 18, have they not heard? Have they not heard of this good news about Jesus? Have they not heard the gospel? And he answers, of course they have. And he quotes from Psalm 19, kind of interesting way, but the point is that the gospel has gone out to the ends of the earth. Paul cannot conceive of a Jewish community that hasn't heard the news about Jesus by now when he writes this. And so then he asks in verse 19, okay, okay, if if they've heard, did they not understand? And again, he quotes from the Old Testament, this time from Deuteronomy 32, to say, of course they understood. It was actually the Gentiles who had no understanding. They were the foolish nation in that quotation there. In fact, they had no understanding, and they still got in on it. So it wasn't a problem of hearing. It wasn't a problem of understanding. And in verse 20, he quotes Isaiah, reiterating a bit of the mystery here. He says, Isaiah is so bold to say, I've been found by those who did not seek me. I've shown myself to those who did not ask for me. Speaking here of the Gentiles. And there's a little bit of divine sovereignty and human responsibility both in that verse, isn't there? But then the last thing he says about Israel's unbelief lands squarely on human responsibility. Verse 21, but of Israel, he says, all day long, I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. In fact, it adds to a verse we skipped over a little bit ago in verse 16, if you're paying close attention, where he says, they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Here the gospel which has been heard, the gospel which is, has been understood, is said to have been disobeyed. They didn't obey the gospel. All day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. How do we explain When the sharing of the gospel doesn't work, we explain it as human responsibility, human culpability. In other words, everyone is responsible for how they treat the gospel. Now, obeying the gospel might seem like a strange way to phrase it until we consider a couple other places in the Bible, like Paul's point at the end of Acts 17 when he's preaching at the Areopagus in Athens. Listen to what he says at the end of his message to them. He says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands. God commands it. It's not an option. God commands who? All people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. 
There's a command that has gone out. It's gone out to all peoples everywhere, certainly everywhere the gospel's been preached. Jesus said it himself. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Here comes the command. Repent. Believe the gospel. It's a command. The gospel good news that Jesus has come to save sinners. Right? The, through Jesus and Jesus alone comes salvation. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's not your own doing, never by works. Repent, turn from your efforts to establish your righteousness on your own. Turn to Jesus, confess with your mouth that he is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. When that is heard and understood and rejected, it's an act of disobedience, God's word says. And anyone who disobeys the gospel is responsible for disobeying the gospel and therefore deserving of the condemnation that comes their way. We are responsible for our rejection of the gospel. That's human responsibility. We are not responsible for our acceptance of it. That's God's divine sovereignty. And if that's difficult to square those two things in your head, you're beginning to understand the antinomy. Both are true. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? That's how Paul ends chapter 11. After he's been thinking about this, writing all this. Who has understood the mind of the Lord? Not us. Where does that leave us then? What does that all mean for us as heralds of the gospel who have people in our lives who we long to see come and know Jesus? What do we do? Well, Paul models and tells us pretty well, doesn't he? Chapter 10, verse 1, we pray for them. Our heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. We don't stop praying for them. Paul didn't. We pray that their heart would be softened, their mind would be illumined, that the gospel would break through and take hold. We know it's not up to us. Just as much as we're not responsible for our acceptance of the gospel, we're not responsible for someone else's. God is the one who bestows the riches, the mercy, the grace. So if they don't believe, it doesn't necessarily immediately mean you're doing something wrong. Someone you love and has shared the gospel with isn't believing. It's not your fault. And yet we are still responsible on our part for how we treat the gospel. So we keep on heralding. We keep on witnessing in whatever ways we can with our actions, but also with our words. Gently. Winsomely, non judgmentally, respectfully, compassionately, lovingly, like Jesus. We keep looking for opportunities to point them to Him, the one and only rock of our salvation, for how they call on Him. If they've not believed, and how will they believe in him whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? 
How are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Keep your feet beautiful, church. You're responsible for how you treat the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. We thank you that while we were still weak, still sinners, you sent him for us. Thank you for the righteousness that comes by faith and for opening our eyes and our mind and our hearts to receive it. We know we don't deserve it. We know we haven't earned it. We know we're not responsible for accepting it. And so help us to surrender and submit moment by moment to this glorious gospel. Help us to obey it. And help us to hold in beautiful, mysterious tension your sovereignty and salvation and human responsibility. Draw the unbelieving to yourself now, Lord, even right now. And use us in the process. Make us diligent with your gospel, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.